Okay, we're going to read the Great Commission from Matthew again. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let me pray, friends. Heavenly Father, please help us to really uh, drink deep into our souls what your word says and uh, give us strength by your spirit to do it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Friends, we've been looking at uh, the topic, or we're going to continue looking at the topic of how to change the world under God, um, at least in your time with me. And uh, yesterday we looked at the topic, who changes the world, and worked out that it is the disciples of Jesus, godly men and women, followers of Christ, who are the people who change the world. And today I want to look at how you change the world. How do you change the world? Now again, I suspect if we rocked on down to the Victor Harbour Coles supermarket and asked people there, how do you change the world, you wouldn't go far wrong from what's written in your outline on page 14. The world would answer the question probably with something like, you make something. If you think about people who have changed the world, they've often made something. Can anyone think of examples of people who have changed the world by making something? Feel free to yell them out. Soap. Soap. Do you know who made soap? No, I don't, but it it, um, basically accounted for the huge population increase in the world. Fantastic. Other people? So, Alexander Bell, and what did he make, the bell? No, what did he make? The telephone. Now, I heard someone else yell something out over here. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, what did he make? What didn't he make? <laughs> what do you love about what he made? What, what things that he made do you like? Oh. Yeah, you reckon they've made a difference though, eh? Yeah. Isn't it amazing? He made stuff that made his other stuff redundant. It's amazing, like the iPhone put the iPod out of business. It's amazing, he's so good at making stuff, the the stuff he makes put other stuff out, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Other things? Electricity. Electricity. Do we know who made that? God. God. (laughs) (laughs) I I can think of Benjamin Franklin with a a kite, but I don't know whether that had anything. Edison did, did he? Light bulb. What's the use of having electricity without a light bulb? I'm with you, sister. (laughs) Henry Ford made the automobile. Gutenberg made the printing press. Making stuff's pretty innate to us as human beings. It's quite core to being human, in fact. And if you make something, it doesn't have to change the whole world, does it? We don't have to do a Steve Jobs. We can just change a small part of the world. Um, These things. Oh, mate, these are awesome. These are Smith and Nephew operation bandages. You know when you have an operation and you've got a big scar and you put that over it, it's waterproof, you can go and have a shower. Oh, gee, it's good. It's awesome. 
Paywave. Oh, Visa Paywave. <laughs> Who likes that? Oh, yeah. Mate, they make us spend money so much easier these days, don't they, eh? I go on a little trip with a bunch of blokes where we go into the jungles of Vietnam, um, not Vietnam, Vanuatu. And, um, and what we do is we basically have a job. We have a job to make something. There's about eight blokes and we go really remote. And the job is to make a tap with clean water that runs for a village. And last time we did it in 2013, we made one tap that would service a village of 70 people so they could get fresh water. I'm really embarrassed about doing that because at my house, five people have 14 taps that you can drink clean, clean water out of. But gee, sometimes making something can really change the world. It doesn't change the whole world, but it can change a part of the world. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ makes things, doesn't he? So in Genesis 1 and 2, he made the world and it's no wonder when he makes us human beings in his image that we like to make things too and in fact there's so much to make or so much to build that it can actually get quite overwhelming so when we travel to these villages in Vanuatu I always notice the rivers that don't have bridges there's so much that needs to be made and there's so much that needs to be made or so much change that needs to be brought out that sometimes it can draw a couple of reactions. It can make us frantic and we can run around and try and meet all these needs or we can freeze up and just not know what to do. One of the great things about being a believer, one of the great things about having ac access to God's blog, the Bible, is that we can get wisdom from our maker, the maker, about what he wants us to make as of first importance. So as we continue to dig deep into Jesus' last words in the Great Commission, we see the Bible answer the question, how do you change the world? We see the glorious son say, make something. Jesus, God, with, God in the flesh, God with kneecaps and nose hair, he came to planet Earth to change the world by making something. Disciples. He spent three years here in his public ministry making disciples and as he leaves, he exhorts the 11 disciples to do to others what he did to them to continue changing the world in his absence by making something. Disciples. Who make something? Disciples. Now let's have a look at it again in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, uh, 18, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now I want uh, you to do a little bit of homework. Um, I want to ask you two questions about the Great Commission, which I want you to work on with the person next to you. I'll ask you the second one in a minute. But the first one is, what activities are involved in disciple-making? And I want you to look at the text so that when you get your answers, they come from the text. Because when, when I call them out, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask you which verse you got that from. So make sure when you call it out. And if you're not quite sure what we're going to do, 
Um, I'm going to fill in this little table here. Because in the Great Commission, the way the, the language works in there, there's one doing word, it's make disciples, and then there's other ing words. And there's three ing words or activities that go with disciple making. Chat to the person next to you, I'm going to get your answers in a second. Go. How'd you go there? Do you want to help me fill in uh, the org chart? My nickname uh, at school was Mr. Squiggle. I can't do a talk or do anything like this without drawing a picture. Sorry about that. <laughs> awesome. You rock. Best sledging yet. <laughs> Baptising. Yes. Yeah, that's. Yes. Baptising. Other ones? Going. Going, yeah. Going. Verse 19. Verse 19. Thank you, brother. Other one? Teaching. Forgive me if that's a bit simplistic, just chucking up on the board there, but I think it's just good to see what activities are involved or are associated with disciple making. Notice going there. It's interesting, isn't it? Going. To whom do you go in that going? Who do you go to? What does the text say? Yeah. This sort of harks back back to uh, Genesis 18, 18, when Abraham was told that the descendants of him would be a blessing to all nations. It's exactly the same phrase there. This is the guy who's going to fulfill the blessing to all nations. It's interesting, isn't it? And when you go and reach all nations, you can reach them in a variety of different ways, can't you? Like, whenever I hear somebody wanting to go and minister overseas to another nation, I always ask them, oh, how's your mission work going across the road and across the suburb? Because there's no use going across the world if you don't do it across the street and across the suburb, is there? You go to all nations, because a lot of the nations have actually come to us. You do all of the above. And do you notice you go? I mentioned before about uh, how Reese Bazant met me, or uh, rather I met him in that church that night at St Jude's Carlton, and do you know what Reese said when he found out that I was that Ben guy whose phone number he had and we chatted and he knew I was interested in the meaning of life? Do you notice what he said to me when I told that story the other night? He didn't say, hey, why don't you come back to church next week? What did he say? He said, 
why don't I go to you and go and see you and meet with you where you live so I can meet your peeps, so I can be in your place, so I can see your situation. Read a, a chapter of Mark and then we'll answer questions. Do you see how Reese thought? We've got a big problem in Christianity today. I call it magnetianity. <laughs> magnetianity is the idea that if we have a building and a time a Sunday service or a Saturday and it absolutely rocks. The music's fantastic. The announcements even have things like videos connect to them and then, and then the speaker has a Britney Spears microphone and is really engaging and everything. Then, Do you know what'll happen? Do you know what'll happen? This magnet that we build will, will enable all non-Christians who are like iron filings to go and stick to that magnet because all non-Christians want to go to Christian gatherings that are run really well. No, they don't. <laughs> they want to go to that Christian gathering run really well about as much as I want to go to the local Sikh temple somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> now, maybe my problem is not to, wanting to go to the Sikh temple. Be very aware of Magnadiani. Reese didn't believe in that. He goed to me. And I suspect when you look at ministries around Australia, you can see very clearly why some people are well, some ministries are seeing people become Christians and some aren't. And I think going's got a lot to do with it. So AFES has seen a lot of people come to faith in Christ. Why is that? Well, AFES actually does its ministry where the people are. It doesn't expect the people to leave the campus and come to them. They go to them. I was chatting to um, Elliot uh, last night and Elliot is a chaplain to the West Adelaide Football Club. What do you think he does? Oh, I'd just like to invite all you guys, via email by the way, uh, to come to my church. No, he goes to them. And when does he go? It's not when they're not there. He finds out when training's on and he goes at the time that they're there. Going's really, really important. Uh, baptising. What, uh, what does baptism mean in the Bible? It's an interesting uh, thing in the Bible, baptism. There's a lot of controversy about baptism. It's amazing how much it appears in the letters and the, the post-gospel writing with zero water mentioned. It's quite fascinating, really. I mean, baptism, the original word means to cleanse, so it's got that connected to it. But it's also like in passages like Romans chapter 6, verse 3, it's got to do with dying. So you're baptised into Christ's death and you die with him. It's got to do with putting off in Galatians 3.27, you're baptised into Christ and you put on Christ. It's putting clothes on. And then here in Matthew 28, it's the idea of allegiance or alignment. You're baptised into the name of the Father and the Son and of the Spirit. You're coming under the Lordship of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Baptism is a, is a sign of both entrance into the community and the subsequent submission to the Lordship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then there's teaching. Now, obviously, we teach, like, baptism sort of signifies there's the going, and then they become Christians, and the baptisms are sort of a sign that they've become one. And then there's the teaching. You Obviously, you teach them for a little while, and then you stop, don't you? Did you notice that in the text? You, stop, you work with people for a while, and then you stop. Did you notice that? You didn't. <laughs> well sorry I clearly read that 
you teach them to obey everything I've commanded. I presume once someone's done everything that Jesus commanded, then you, you just stop teaching them. Is that fair? It's a cyclical argument. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Has anyone got a dictionary? Could they look up? Yeah, I think we know that nobody's ever going to obey everything that Jesus commanded. But it's interesting, isn't it? You work with people and you teach them and you help them to understand what Jesus is saying and that is going to be a lifetime project, isn't it? Until such time as they enter glory. Now, teaching, I don't know what you think of when you think of teaching. When you think of teaching people to obey everything that Jesus commanded, what do you have in your mind's eye? Because I'm pretty worried if you have pulpiteering in your mind's eye. If you have in mind what I'm doing right now. The reason I'm a bit worried if you think that is because Christianity was illegal for the first 300 years of its existence. Does anyone know what the Romans called the Christians for that first 300 years? Atheists. The Romans called Christians atheists because they did not believe in the gods of the Roman Empire. It was illegal to be a Christian in most parts of the Roman Empire. So when you're thinking of teaching, don't think of pulpiteering. Think of homes and, see, and think of cedar trees. Think of people doing stuff in their private environment and people doing things under trees because that's what happened. So when people here are obeying Jesus and teaching, the, teaching those that have been baptised to obey everything Jesus commanded, it's got that very earthy, one-to-one, viral, organic, SAS, behind enemy lines feel about it. That's what's going on here. And friends, I think that's another problem in Christianity because we so often in Christianity have these questions about what can I do, when can I do it, what qualifications do I need, what's the remuneration, what uniform should I... No, 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 no. We are part of an insurgency where it's great if you can be remunerated, it's great if you can get a qualification, but the bottom line is you are part of an insurgency who's required to do stuff, whether the authorities agree with it or not, in your particular denomination or patch or the government says you can or you can't. That's what we're a part of. Friends, um, I keep running into people who feel like if they can't be the senior minister of a church, then somehow or other, they're not going to have a valid ministry job slash career. Well, 77% of Australian evangelical Christians became a Christian before the age of 20. So I figure if we're doing the earthy, viral, organic work of proclaiming the gospel to people and then becoming Christians, we're working with people probably, and we've gone out, we're probably in schools, we're probably in places where they're already gathered, we're probably in sporting clubs. So please, my friends, think hard about the Great Commission. Don't think hard about the church. Think about obeying Jesus. Now it's worth remembering and noting an important detail here. Um, baptising and teaching here are not the means of making disciples, but they characterise it. And I presume here in the New Testament, they can scarcely conceive of a disciple who isn't baptised or receiving instruction like this. We all know that it is the preaching of the gospel and believing in it 
by which somebody becomes a disciple of Jesus. And Romans 10 verse 9 attests to that, doesn't it? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So friends, how do you change the world? You make something. Or more specifically, you make someone. Now the second question I've got for you to look at with the person next to you is if you look at that Great Commission and you know how it's uh, the 11 disciples who are given the command, how do you know the disciple is a mature disciple from the Great Commission? Chat to the person next to you. What does a mature disciple look like? Now gather your attention back. Does anyone want to uh, throw something forward? Preferably not a cyclical argument, please. Yeah, or you teach what you know, I suppose, yeah, yep. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it? So he gathers the 11 disciples on a mountain, God gathers his people on a mountain, gives them a mission, says, I'll be with you. And what does he say? He says, make disciples. So if those 11 are going to be mature and do what Jesus says, they will make disciples. So the disciples of Jesus follow Jesus' command, and that is to make disciples. But the disciples they make, what do those disciples do? Well, they're disciples of Jesus. What does a mature disciple of Jesus do? They make disciples. And then they, of course, train people up and baptise them once they believe and teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. They become Christians and they become disciples. What do they do? They teach people and make disciples. Can you see how it all flows on? What is a mature Christian? A mature Christian is someone who makes disciples who make disciples, who make disciples. My predecessor in um, at MTS was a bloke called Cole Marshall. And Cole Marshall once had a throwaway line when we were grabbing a coffee somewhere in some shop. And he said to me, yeah, I really don't think someone I've, um, I've, been, di- I've been discipling or mentoring is mature until they can see four generations of Christians under them. And I've just sort of gone, What? So Cole reckons that if he trains person A, he's not convinced person A is mature until they've trained B to make disciples of C to make disciples of D. Interesting, isn't it? I keep running into Christian parents who are very pleased, and they should be, by God's grace that their children are believers, but are their child, are their, do their children make disciples? Because that's one of the questions of maturity isn't it well let's take a breather for a second and um oh no before we do that we can't take a breather yet because one thing i want to bring to your attention is that that picture i left on your chair have you got that now we can talk about the work of disciple making but it's hard to talk about that unless we think about the whole of life isn't it Now this diagram here, this is a diagram about my life and can I encourage you to draw a diagram of your life but one of the things that will be the same in yours and the same in mine is the four corners. Can you see the four corners with the red E? There's ministry that's universally required to be done by every single Christian. 
So you notice in the top left, make disciples who make other disciples, Matthew 28. Far right, love God, love neighbour. Bottom right, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Be rooted and built up in him, bottom left. And then on the middle of it, there's a whole stack of works that I do because I'm a 45-year-old dad. I've got to cherish my wife, Ephesians 5.28. I've got to be a good steward of money, 1 Timothy 6. I've got got to do hospitality, Hebrews 13.12. In a year of an election, I've got to do citizen's work. I've got to go to funerals and there's more of them happening the older I get. There's the work of maintenance around the house. The father work, Ephesians 6.4 of not exasperating my children, but instead growing them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Can you see how, when you just look at a very, and this is very brief, a very brief picture of a person's life, can you see how, when we read Ephesians 2 and it talks about the good works God has prepared for us in advance to do, that it's a very full picture. What I notice most Christians do when the topic of work is mentioned is they do asegesis. They don't take meaning out of the text, they put meaning into the text. And whenever they see the word work in the Bible, they think remuneration, my occupation nine to five. But can you see here, there's a plethora of works that a 45-year-old dad has to do and your picture looks just the same, although the elements might be different. Friends, can I encourage you, if you have an occupation that makes disciple-making, the the time you spend disciple-making so small in life that it's almost indistinguishable, can I encourage you to ditch your occupation and change jobs? Because disciple-making is a really important work that Jesus requires of us to do in order to change the world. I hope you uh, draw your own diagram in your own time and share that around. So let's take a breather for a sec and look back on where we've travelled. We've asked the question at the beginning, how do you change the world? Uh, The world's answer will often be make something and the Bible's answer when you fly at 40,000 feet looks pretty similar, you make something but as you drop altitude and get down near the tarmac and look hard at what the Great Commission actually says, you realise it isn't so much make something but make someone, make disciples who make disciples and that is what Jesus did to change the world that's what his disciples the 11 did to change the world and clearly by God's grace that has been the pattern ever since because the extraordinary beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has reached us in 2014 from that little meeting there in about 30 AD and it's gone from 11 people in 30 AD in Galilee to 2.5 billion people on planet earth 2,000 years later. I know I'm sounding like an old record but Jesus when he came did not sit in a room, go to a desk and write down books. He did not start up a theological college. He did not even establish a relief agency, although all of those things are fantastic. No, he invested deeply in a few. He made disciples who invested deeply in a few who made disciples and it keeps going on. That's how to change the world. So in one sense, um, at face value, 
how you change the world doesn't seem massively complicated. So the question is, why wouldn't we make disciples? Or since we're at CV South Australia, and asking questions like, will you consider doing a full-time ministry apprenticeship? Or put another way, will you consider being an apprentice disciple maker for two years full-time under an experienced disciple maker? Why wouldn't someone do that? Well, there's good reasons why some people may not do that. So Adam McCormack, a friend of mine, he's the full-time carer of a terminally ill relative. It's not appropriate for Adam to do that at the moment. But in the vast majority of cases that I run into, I think there are two reasons why people balk. Two reasons why gifted people will hesitate when thinking about doing a ministry apprenticeship. And and the two reasons, I think, are fear and pride. Let me flesh them out. Fear. Some people are shy and they're afraid to make disciples. Uh, Some people are afraid of persecution in society. Some people are afraid of family opposition. Some people are afraid of being poor. They're just really worried about the pay wave not working if they're doing a ministry apprenticeship because they're used, they're accustomed to a certain standard of living. And some people fear failure. I run into eye disease all the time. Do you know what eye disease is? It's people, I've I've seen it a heap in the time that I've been here this weekend where people say, I don't think I'm suited to do gospel ministry because I don't think I have the gifts. I call that eye disease. I say to them, I'm not really that concerned about what you think. What does your pastor, what do your peers and what do the pupils, those you teach the gospel, think about you? And when you look at the scriptures, how do the scriptures assess somebody's suitability to be a gospel worker? You go to places like 1 Timothy 3 and you see the qualifications or the yardstick or the measuring pole for those who are qualified to be leaders of God's people. And what do you see there? You see CCCG, CCCGCC. It's all character. A couple of gifts apt to teach. Every, every single person here who's got through year 10 is usually apt to teach. Character and then able to manage their household well. That's the qualification there. That's the who is appropriate. We're going to work out the how you make disciples later on, but that's the criteria the scriptures use. Who are you? Are you qualified to be an elder? Most churches use that in order to work out who's a Bible study group leader. So if you lead a Bible study group now, you've probably passed the 1 Timothy 3 test. Does that mean you'll know how to make disciples in the future? Probably not. I'm 44 and every situation I go into... I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out. You'll see that tonight. But fear is not a great thing to put as a roadblock or a hurdle in the way. And what have we got in the scriptures? What do the scriptures say to us if we are afraid of any of those things? Jesus says to us, I am with you. I am with you to the very end of the age. There will not be a moment where I am not with you. You can't work it out. I'm with you. You're not sure how you're going to get rid of that problem that's in front of... I'm with you. I am with you. And the second one is pride. No one ever says it out loud, but they think things like, I'm doing other stuff. I'm doing important stuff. 
They might say, and what, what that important stuff is, it might be a whole variety of different things. But what they're thinking is, I'm doing other stuff, I'm doing important stuff. And, and, and it just sort of gets to them a little bit that on their Facebook profile, they might have to change the status update to ministry apprentice. They really don't think that cuts the mustard, and they're not too happy if their friends, especially from high school, see that one. They're doing other stuff, they're doing important stuff and deep down they're very friendly with the world and there's a few things that they really want. I call them the four Ps. They want a good position in the company. And why do they want that? That position helps them to get a good pay packet. And why do you need a good pay packet? Well, it just gives you some security in life and helps you with the third P, which is a postcode. Everyone, you know, really, I just, I just want a humble abode. It just happens... I've got three humble abodes now in three of the most expensive postcodes in Australia. They want a postcode. And why do they want those three Ps? It's because of parental approval. My experience in Australia is that parental approval is the main motivator for people to do things. It's certainly the main detractor from anyone doing an apprenticeship. Friends, people are chasing the four Ps. What's the antidote to that? Could you turn up to Matthew 19, please? There's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And you know the conversation. Jesus says, you know, we'll sell everything, pal. And he turns around and he ain't happy, Jan. And then the disciples say to Jesus, verse 23, then Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that a sober warning? Why any Christian would want to be rich when Jesus has said those two sentences? Why would any Christian want to be rich? When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, who can then be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered, we've left everything to follow you, pal. What? what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone, this room included, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Are you chasing the four Ps? Because if you are, put them aside and you'll get a hundred times P in eternity. Actually, 400 P. Friends, I know there are many unknowns and it's very unsettling. But the beauty of a two-year hands-on full-time apprenticeship under the guidance and supervision of an experienced pastor is a really wonderful opportunity because you can work out whether you're suited to being a disciple maker in that capacity. You can give things a crack and you can do it all the time while we hear the noise <laughs> going on. That's your training wheels going around. Because <laughs> you're an apprentice. So everyone knows you've got the training wheels on, they're just hearing the squeak, 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 squeak. And if you really stuff it up, you just go point to the trainer. <laughs> and he gets the bullet in the neck. 
Friends, I know there's a lot of fears. We've got one disciple-making Australian, in my estimation, for every 125 Australians. And I'm an example of someone who went from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and I think the illustration that Richard Schumach uses is pretty accurate. It's the equivalent of someone being a card-carrying AFL supporter and changing codes and becoming a card-carrying rugby league supporter. Your family will love it when you do that. No, they won't, will they? (laughs) Can you imagine the persecution someone would get if when they shift like that? That's what it's like. And we've got one for every 125. There's a massive need. Before we finish up, let, uh, let me share with you a couple of dangerous myths. Dangerous myth number one. A mature Christian is someone who believes Jesus is the Son of God, regularly attends church, and is committed to a midweek Bible study. That is a myth. Let me say it again, because if you're not shocked, you didn't hear what I said. A mature Christian is someone who believes Jesus is the Son of God, regularly attends church, and is committed to a midweek Bible study. Why are they not mature in that definition? They're not making disciples. Add making disciples to that and then you've got a mature Christian. Unfortunately, our churches call a person mature based on that standard, not on the Great Commission. We've got to stop it. Myth number two, goodliness is the same as godliness. Goodliness is the same as godliness. You may have heard a quote. Uh, It gets ascribed to Francis of Assisi, although I have yet to been able to work out whether he actually said it. But the quote goes something like this, Preach the gospel, my brethren, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that kind of sentiment? Basically, it's be a nice person and everyone's going to come to Jesus because that's the equivalent of preaching the gospel. The only problem is that preaching seems to involve words and a message in the Bible. So 1 Thessalonians 2, what does Paul do when he goes to Thessalonica? He says, uh, my, my trip was not a failure because... I told you God's gospel despite opposition. He uses his mouth and speaks. There are times in the Bible where you're encouraged to win someone over without words. 1 Peter 3, the wife, Christian wife of an unbelieving husband. But she's not instructed to use that same process or method for every single person she knows. It's a particular scenario. We've got a bit of a situation happening in Australia at the moment where if someone works as a civil engineer like I used to and they get their Excel spreadsheets right as they prepare project plans and they don't gossip around the water cooler, that somehow or other people are going to become Christians that way. That's goodliness. Godliness is doing that and sharing the gospel of Jesus. When I worked as a civil engineer, people did not sit down at staff meetings and go, gee, Ben's Ben's got a fair bit of proficiency with his Excel spreadsheets and he doesn't gossip around the water cooler. And as a result of that, I really can't see how Jesus is descended from David. (laughs) He really is the son of God who takes away the sin of the world as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he will rise again and if I trust in him, I'll be saved as well. It doesn't work like that. Honour God at work, in your work, full stop theology, is a 
half theology. We need to make disciples. Our third one, shy people can't make disciples. Shy people can't make disciples. Shy people have a tremendous advantage in life. The scriptures say, be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. If you're a shy person, what a wonderful privilege you have. You just need to ask a couple more questions and keep those people talking so you don't have to talk. (laughs) And just do question evangelism, where there's a book called Question Evangelism, just do that. If you're a shy person and you get it right, you'll get them to talk themselves into the kingdom as you ask clarificatory (laughs) questions. And what do the scriptures say? In the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, does it talk about your personality and whether you're shy or boisterous or obstreperous, whatever that means, a buoyant person or using circular... What was that again? (laughs) It doesn't. It talks about your character. And 1 Peter 3.15 says, Set apart Christ as Lord. Be prepared to give an answer for whoever asks for the reason for the hope that you have. Shy people can answer a question. You know who I think often finds it hard to become a gospel worker? It's cool people. Because just as a rich man, it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, cool people are rich too. They're rich in reputation. And they do not want to give that up by associating themselves with Jesus in public. Well, as we finish up, friends, we've been looking at how to change the world under God together this weekend. Yesterday, we looked at who and found out that God's change agents in the world are just disciples of Jesus, Christian men and women. And today, we ask the question, how do you change the world under God? And the answer is you make something, someone, you make disciples. Father, help us to make disciples If we don't know how to do it, help us to learn. If we do know how to do it, help us to help others. And we pray that uh, the kingdom might grow as a result of you working through us by your spirit to bring the great gospel of Jesus to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And the congregation said, Amen. Amen.